Coming up, what an excellent day for shaking beds. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 45 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Ryan Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so our minute starts with Chris walking down the hall. And it ends with Father Dyer walking down a hall. Mm, yes, it's an excellent day for hallways, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, before we rejoin Chris upstairs, I had promised we would talk a little bit about uh, another character at the party who features a little bit more in the book and who has an interesting scene which occurs right about here. Uh, so... In the book, after Reagan is put to bed for the second time, the party's still going on, though in hushed tones. And then people start to leave out of an unspoken sense of uh, discomfort. And then Chris has an interesting, interesting interaction with our psychic Mary Jo Perrin at the door. So let's have a listen. A reading from the book of Blatty. The last to leave were Mary Jo Perrin and her son. Chris held them at the door with idle chatter. She had a feeling that Mary Jo had something on her mind, but was holding it back. To delay her departure, Chris asked her opinion on Reagan's continued use of the Ouija board and her Captain Howdy fixation. Do you think there's any harm in it? She asked. Expecting an airily perfunctory dismissal, Chris was surprised when Miss Perrin frowned and looked down at the doorstep. She seemed to be thinking, and still in this posture she stepped outside and joined her son, who was waiting on the stoop. When at last she lifted her head, her eyes were in shadow. I would take it away from her, she said quietly. She handed ignition keys to her son. Bobby, start up the motor, she instructed. It's cold. He took the keys, told Chris that he'd loved her in all her films, and then walked shyly away toward an old, battered Mustang parked down the street. Mrs. Perrin's eyes were still in shadow. I don't know what you think of me, she said, speaking slowly. Many people associate me with spiritualism, but that's wrong. Yes, I think I have a gift, she continued quietly. But it isn't occult. In fact, to me it seems natural, perfectly natural. Being a Catholic, I believe that we all have a foot in two worlds. The one that we are conscious of is time. But now and then, a freak like me gets a flash from the other foot. And that one, I think, is in eternity. Well, eternity has no time. There, the future is present. So, now and again, when I feel the other foot, I believe that I get to see the future. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe it's all a coincidence, she shrugged but I think I do. And if that's so, why, I still say it's natural, you see. But now, the occult, she paused, picking words. The occult is something different. I've stayed away from that. I think dabbling with that can be dangerous, and that includes fooling around with the Ouija board. Until now, Chris had thought her a woman of eminent sense, and yet something in her manner now was deeply disturbing. She felt a creeping foreboding, that she tried to dispel. Oh, come on, Mary Jo, Chris smiled. Don't you know how these Ouija boards work? It isn't anything at all but a person's subconscious, that's all. Yes, perhaps, she answered quietly. Perhaps it could all be suggestion. But in story after story that I've heard about seances, Ouija boards, all of that, they always seem to point to the opening of a door of some sort. Oh, not the spirit world, perhaps. You you don't believe that. Perhaps then a door in what you call the subconscious... I don't know. All I know is that things seem to happen. And, my dear, 
there are lunatic asylums all over the world filled with people who have dabbled in the occult. Are you kidding? There was a momentary silence. Then again, the soft voice began droning out of darkness. There was a family in Bavaria, Chris, in 1921. I don't remember the name, but they were a family of 11. You could check it in the newspapers, I suppose. Just a short time following an attempt at a seance, they went out of their minds. All of them. All 11. They went on a burning spree in their house, and when they'd finished with the furniture, they started on the three-month-old baby of one of the younger daughters. And that was when the neighbors broke in and stopped them. The entire family, she ended, was put in an asylum. Oh, boy, breathed Chris as she thought of Captain Howdy. He had now assumed a menacing coloration. Mental illness. Was that it? Something. I knew I should take her to see a psychiatrist. Oh, for heaven's sake, said Mrs. Perrin, stepping into the light. You never mind about me. You just listen to your doctor. There was attempted reassurance in her voice that was not convincing. I'm great at the future, Miss Perrin smiled. But in the present, I'm absolutely helpless. She was fumbling in her purse. Now then, where are my glasses? There, you see, I've mislaid them. Oh, here they are, right there. She had found them in a pocket of her coat. Lovely home, she remarked as she put on the glasses and glanced up at the upper facade of the house. Gives a feeling of warmth. God almighty, I'm relieved. For a second there, I thought you were going to tell me it's haunted. Mrs. Parents glanced down at her. Why would I tell you a thing like that? Chris was thinking of a friend, a noted actress in Beverly Hills, who had sold her home because of her insistence that it was inhabited by a poltergeist. I, I, don't, I don't know, she grinned wanly, on account of who, are you, who you are, I guess. I was kidding. It's a very fine house, Mrs. Perrin reassured her in an even tone. I've been here before, you know, many times. Have you really? Yes. An admiral had it, a friend of mine. I get a letter from him now and then. They've shipped him off to sea again, poor dear. I don't know if it's really him that I miss or this house. She smiled. But then maybe you'll invite me back. Mary Jo, I'd love to have you back. I mean it. You're a fascinating person. Well, at least I'm the nerviest person you know. Oh, come on. Listen, call me, please. Will you call me next week? Yes. I would like to hear how your daughter's coming on. Got the number? Uh, yes, at home in my book. What was off? wondered Chris. There was something in her tone that was slightly off-center. Well, good night, said Mrs. Perrin, and thanks again for a marvelous evening. And before Chris could answer her, she was walking rapidly down the street. For a moment, Chris watched her, and then closed the front door. A heavy lassitude overcame her. Quite a night, she thought. Some night. Some night. So yeah, Mrs. Perrin seems to know what's up. She's a very interesting character. Um, <clears throat> you can kind of see how she functions in a book very well because the book has more time to go into these other thematic, uh, you know, explorations and how a movie might not work, right? Because it sort yes. of slows it down. Yes. And I would actually go so far as to say I kind of like that we only have um, – uh, one set of opposing mystical forces in this movie. Right. Um, oh, good. I'm glad you said that because that's sort of how movies work. I, I don't want to be so reductive, but but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, we have binary oppositions, is how some right, film right. scholars like to put it. But that's that's what film is made for. It's this or it's that. It's not. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, there are exceptions, obviously, where thing, themes are triangulated, etc. But for the most part, it's like, um, you know. Work or family. <laughs> you yeah, have yeah. to pick. Which one are you going to pick? Your work or your family? Work or Christmas? <laughs> which right. one do you like? Right? <laughs> you can either be married to your job or you can... <laughs> be married to Matthew McConaughey. Mm. 
But yeah, folks, uh, this is going to come out again a little bit later, uh, you know, when we get to the uh, the supposed name of this demon. But um, I, I don't know. I just think it's so much cleaner that we have like one set of uh, good guys and one set of bad guys uh, that uh, that that know each other and that are like kind of like I don't know how would you say like like they're paired together they're mm-hmm. they're um, they're yin and yang they're eternal rivals right right the fact that that Mary Jo um, it, like is also like hey I I know about this thing coming in there and and you know be, like like as as if she could um, I don't know like like help in some way it just kind of it it like reduces the I guess the 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 coolness of, of like our, our like mystical priests, you know? Right. Again, in the book that might work very, very well. Right. Um, and geez, these are interesting ideas she's bringing up in your reading that you have that she is, she is a spiritualist. And so he said that, so I was making all sorts of, um, of suppositions about what that meant for her. And then now in this moment you have, you're like, Oh, but I'm a Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's very, very interesting. Cause like, and, and, uh, as, as we saw in, uh, the reading, she doesn't even I guess like to be called a spiritualist, right. um, and she she like even makes a joke about it. Like uh, every now and then, a freak like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, like we get the feeling that she's uh, uh, she at, at least she believes what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know whether or not you know what, whatever's going on. She's not like she's not one of those uh, you know like uh, uh, stereotypical um, you know uh, uh, flim flam people. Those frauds. Those uh, you know. Those people in the spiritualist right. movement who were trying to like you know sham everybody out of their money and that stuff. we talked about with the on the Ouija board episode. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, uh, to try to you know put this into context again, like Blatty is writing this book uh, or thinking about the book heavily in the late 1960s and then writing it in the early 1970s, and this is a time when um, Americans are rethinking everything about society, mm. right? And a lot of that comes with uh, religion at its core, right? Right. So um, we will bring this up a little bit later when we get into the really Catholic stuff. <laughs> but there had been um, movements within the Catholic Church to reform. Um, so even even in Italy, it had gone to the point where the Pope is like, we need to make some changes about how we're how we're doing the Catholic stuff. Yeah, and in America. You know, we have huge the, the whole youth subculture is like, well, everything is corrupt. Education is corrupt. Getting a job is corrupt. They're trying to sell me deodorant uh, so they can go work at my job, and the job is just there to support the taxes to pay for the war to kill brown children in Vietnam. Like everything is all connected together. Yeah, and and a big part of that was um, this push against organized religion. We started having people saying things like, "I am not religious. I'm spiritual instead." Right, and that's self defined. Um, and we have people who still identify as Christians, but are starting to think a lot about ideas from um, Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and thinking about reincor- reincarnation, not necessarily converting fully to Hinduism, Buddhism, though some people do, right? Right. And at the same time period, we have um, um, African-Americans who are, are looking into Islam, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's this whole this wholesale thing. So some people convert and then other people just can never quite go back to the full um, uh, appreciation of the dogma. I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but like in right. the full the full tenets of Catholicism or Christianity. Right, right, yeah. And I think uh, like that is that is um, uh, still uh, the way of today. I know mm-hmm. lots of um, lots of Catholics, lots of Christians. I mean, like myself included. Where like I don't, I don't. Uh, there, there's a lot of things uh, about the church that I do not agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and and. I, I often wonder if it's like, does this mean I'm a, what do they call it? Like a, a universalist? Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, and that's what uh, you were saying. That's what um, Ellen Burstyn was, right? Like she, she believes in, in all of the things. Right. right? I don't know how she, how she identifies. Right. But mm. she, but she has taken um, an Arabic uh, Islamic um, spiritual name. 
Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. She also believes in things like reincarnation. Again, I don't, I don't put words in her mouth, right? Right. right. Um, but she has also said uh, relatively recently that she is a Christian. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Uh, you know, she's she's a. Uh, um, elderly now, so I don't know if, if she's uh, changed her religious views, but there are a couple of different interviews with her throughout her time where, where yeah. she is expressing um, uh, a variety of beliefs and not necessarily expressing them in terms of like, I've converted now. It's more like additive right. rather than um, rather than substitution. Yeah. Um, in person, I mean, like, you know, I remember growing up and my mom talking about reincarnation mm-hmm. like, as a possibility. And I was like, right. but then like on that same day, we <laughs> right. would go to, you know, uh, Catholic mass and, and be like, oh, okay. And that, that just kind of like reaffirmed in me. It was like, oh, this is like, like, yeah, nobody knows. So we can just kind of like have this healthy, like, you know, wondering of it, right? Mm-hmm. And and not this fear of like, I don't know, of being wrong and suffering the consequences. Yeah. Whatever. But then again, yeah. imagine that in 1973, these things were much more on the fringe. And so for Mary Jo to say, like, I'm a freak because I'm a Catholic who also believes in spirits or ghosts or, um, or a fifth dimension, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Catholics, they get time, but there's something else. There's a fifth thing. She doesn't say the word fifth dimension, but. Right, right. right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So she is, she is in this time. She is a very interesting person mm-hmm. um, because, because she's got, <laughs> like she says, she's got, you know, one foot in both worlds, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, l- 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 you know, like we were saying, I think, I think uh, just a little bit cleaner to not have her, um, you know, uh, as prominent in, in the story, I think. Um, for the movie, yeah. Movies, for the movie. movie's got to move is what they say. Movie's got to move, yeah, right? Um, but yeah, let's get back to Chris. Uh, so uh, she has just come. So so in the movie, this doesn't happen, this exchange with uh, mm-hmm. with uh, with Mary Jo. Mary Jo right? has no lines. Nope, no lines, right? Um, do we know if, if the actor like had lines and they were cut or did we Well, just... there are lines in the script, not the scene that you're talking about, but but she mm-hmm. does have lines where she's talking to Burke and uh, – or Father Dyer, rather. That's her, her, oh, her main okay. uh, partner. So in that scene that's in the movie where – Chris is on the floor talking to Father Dyer and Mary Jo is there. Uh, the script right. that we have from December of 72 has lines from Mary Jo. Right. Oh, yes. That's the that's that's the scene where Father Dyer is standing in for the Jesuit dean <laughs> from right. the book, right? Yes, not, exactly. not our Jesuit dean, but like the, <laughs> the, the real Georgetown Jesuit dean. <laughs> the, weird, the real Jesuit dean. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oof, yeah. We got we got Father Nicola. We got Jesuit Dean. There they are in the back room of that bar, that, you know, that we talked about. So we got we got the Exorcist. We got the Babadook, and they're all sitting in there having they're having their fun, right? Um, we got we got the Friday the Thirteenth, right? He's not called Jason. He's called the Friday the Thirteenth, right? He's sitting with his hockey mask, and he's he's you know, and we got we got little child's play right there, right there. And he is. Uh, yep. And then in the back room we have Jesuit Dean, and uh, now we have uh, Father John J. D- uh, Nicola. Yeah. <laughs> And they're they're gonna they're gonna uh, take over this bar. I think they're gonna overthrow. They need some diversity in this bar. They need to add the Bride of Frankenstein and, yeah. and the Candyman mm-hmm. and uh, the Megan, which is a, a big movie right now. As right, the Megan. Mm-hmm, <laughs> as we're mm-hmm. recording this, right? We need the Grudge. We need the Ring. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. they're all back there. Yep. And they're just sitting there whispering, just. Right. Yeah, it's 2022. Let's get some some women monsters in here. Mm-hmm, some, mm-hmm, some monsters right? of color. Some of the most – and oh, yeah, folks. I mean like I was waiting to like bring this up. Like the most terrifying movie of all time, mm-hmm. right? The scariest creature, right? This you know, the, this this demon that possesses Reagan. I mean this is played by a woman, right? Actually mm-hmm. played by what? Like three. Three? three? At least well, three women, yeah. At least three. I think there might be more. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I heard I heard Eileen Dietz talk about it on a on a podcast. She might have said five. Right, right. Um, because we have I, – I think the spider walk – 
Uh, oh right, of course. That's a different might person. Be absolutely, different. that's yeah. absolutely different person. Right? Yeah. So we got we got Linda Blair, mm-hmm. we got Eileen Dietz, we got Mercedes McCambridge, and then we got I maybe two. Yeah. yeah, the contortionists, and then maybe one more person. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll have to um, get back to you on that. Or if you know, uh, please let us know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, all like like the pinnacle guys, like the the pinnacle of horror is is held by uh, by these uh, these three to five women. This character. Let me pull this up because I like these AFI lists. They used to do AFI's 100 movies, AFI 100 um, comedies, mm-hmm. etc. So there was one that was AFI's 100 heroes and villains. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And most of it, I mean, most of the characters on the list are men. You know, mm-hmm. just, just that's what people have been making movies about. For them. right, um, even though. At many times in the history of American film, the mm-hmm. audience has been uh, majority women. Still, the majority of the characters are men. But when you look at the villains list, let's see, in the top 10, at least, one, two, three, four, five, six of them are women. Interesting. So uh, if I can go through this here, yeah, number yeah. 10, mm-hmm. the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. Now, is that including like her her other form, like the hag, or is that just? Yes, I would. Yeah, that's both of them, right? That's the okay, same okay. character. Yeah. Number yeah. nine, Reagan McNeil as possessed by the demon Pazuzu from The Exorcist. Oh, it oh it changed. It's it's Pazuzu now. In some, well, this is the official list, and then in some of as some people's reporting on it, they say Satan. Okay. So okay. the AFI, as far as I remember, have always had it correct, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but sometimes it's reported as Satan. Yeah. Well, even there, like okay, we'll we'll, we'll get to it. We'll okay, get okay. to it. <laughs> Number eight, Phyllis Dietrichson uh, from Double Indemnity, which is okay. the film noir from Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. Number seven, Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Ah. So that is a bunch of them. Number six, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I think it's a little high, but that that's a very good performance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From someone who really Uncle Billy is the villain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful life because he's the what one he? who loses the money. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm trying to remember a, a Mr. Potter line. It's like in a very happy new year in jail. <laughs> right, that's a great performance by Lionel Barrymore. But yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. That one's a little high. Mm-hmm. From my mm-hmm. taste, number five, mm-hmm. Nurse Ratched uh, ah. from One of the Cuckoo's Nest. Louis Fletcher just passed away. That's one of my mm-hmm. very favorite performances. Number four, the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So that's six of them. And then the top three, Darth Vader from The Empire Strikes mm-hmm. Back. Okay. Norman Bates from Psycho and Dr. Hannibal Lecter from The Sides ah, of the Ah, okay. So, All yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's something about that when, when, when we look at like, oh, geez, what about – what makes a scary woman or, you know, or why, why would the majority of the very top 10 lists of this list be, be women, right? There's something about it that is like shocking, a, a really high performer on here. Let me see. Number 17 is Annie Wilkes from Misery. Oh yes. And they talk about you like, she's a nurse, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Kathy Bates just looks like a mothering figure. And so when it's yeah. the opposite of that, it's like, oh God, both of those things wrong, right? Yeah. So the juxtaposition, two, yeah. Two nurses in the top 20, actually. Two nurses and and uh, a little girl, right? Mm-hmm, like an innocent, mm-hmm. a sweet, innocent little girl, right? Interesting. Um, and I mean, like, I think we talked about this uh, in our Halloween episode mm-hmm. where like, it, it kind of fascinated me that the idea, you know, is like, um, there are there are things behind each of the monsters that we create right. and it's it's interesting how like they they rise and fall in popularity mm-hmm. and uh, i guess like scarificity scarif- i don't know like, <laughs> like, how 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 scary they are you mm-hmm. know uh, throughout the ages but you know as we move towards uh gender equality and as we you know try to 
get rid of uh, sexism as, uh, you know, like as, as difficult a time as we're still having today. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like the the idea of like the witch, which is basically, mm-hmm. I, I, we, we talked about that backronym, like the woman in total control of herself, mm-hmm. like a woman with, like a basic, a woman with power. That's what a witch with is. With property or with, with agency or yes. who likes to be left alone. <laughs> right. Who has her own transportation system, who, right. you know, like all of these things, uh, you know, who is a shrewd business person, like mm-hmm. all, like that's, that is like at the heart and soul of what a witch is. And honestly, it says more about the era uh, and and the people who are scared of witches than, you know, about witches themselves. Because it's like, this is what we want. This is what, you know, nowadays, like this is what we're like moving towards. We want, you know, women to have just as much agency, just as much power, just as much um, uh, freedom and abilities as men. But like that, that is the, like the, the template that is the blueprint of like a scary witch is like a woman who has power right, right? yeah so two witches in the top 10 of this AFI yep. list um and then you know the these the attacks that you see now on women for a lot of the same things that used to get them um pressed or, or hanged or, or burned at the stake you mm. know um oh you see this abuse that women have online right where it's like hey girl i want to take you out on a date or something much more vulgar oh, than that but then the woman going Jeez. no thank you i don't need some guy dming me i'm fine and then the yeah. accusations are you must be a lesbian right oh my god you yeah know? so so it's a lot of the same impulse from mm-hmm. from men or women who are or misogynistic towards other women um but it's just it just plays in a different direction yeah, yeah, yeah. And as much as as, as much as we, we like to believe we've changed, I we we still have like so much changing to do. <laughs> but uh if we could before we move out of this, let's just think here like mm. so number one, Hannibal Lecter as mm-hmm. a um a psychiatrist, right? Like also thinking about Thomas Harris writing these in the eighties, um right. when psychiatry has become more mainstream. In the sixties, it is like a Woody Allen Mel Brooks joke about who goes to psychiatry. Mm. Right. And now, you know, more yuppie people, more everyday people can afford to go to psychiatry. They're more familiar with it. And then it's like, oh, who is this person that I've let in into my brain? Right. Who can control me? It's less funny. And now it's all like, oh, this is happening to me. Right. right. Norman Bates as this. um, I I think he's gay. (laughs) Norman Mm. Bates is this uh, closeted uh, gay guy. But if you don't think so, like he is this um, uh, he has lost his source of income because the highway has moved away. And, oh. and he just has been he's just this, this rural person who's been left behind by modernization so like we are scared of him right as like if we take the wrong road we can end up in this in this place i don't want to admit is still there this right. america that i don't have to deal with anymore of these these poor rural people who oh um, interesting yeah used to have power and like oh what a t- like that's our fear right, right <laughs> like right. i turn off the road i'm supposed to just go on the highway to los angeles i turn off the road and i'm in i'm in the past with these people with yeah. different values than me oh scary oh, like <laughs> Folks, you know what we're talking about. If you if you've ever like like been driving like uh, you know through the no man's land between like two big cities, mm-hmm. and you just you just make a little turn, you know, right. or you you miss your exit or something like that, and you have to like reroute, like. Duh. Yeah, of course like, everyone there is fine, but it's our of fear, course. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm not even talking about. I'm not even talking about like towns necessarily. Right. I'm just talking about like there is just desert in between. Mm-hmm. Like our two, like the two, the two cities that we are uh, uh, speaking uh, to each other, like uh, you know, across the wide expanse mm-hmm. of just desert, right. you know, and and yeah, like any, it's like space. <laughs> I know. um, yeah, I drive from Las Vegas to to Los Angeles a lot, and mm-hmm. one time I was carpooling my friend who lived in LA. And um, I'm used to either not stopping at all because I drive so often or right. very specifically waiting to pee until I get to Hesperia because there's a super target there that I know I could rely on the bathroom for. <laughs> so, like, there's one place I know I should go to the bathroom. So, with my friend, 
he needed to pee in the, and he's like, he says, let's pee here. I'm like, what an adventure. We get to see this new place. Um, and I pulled off and he went and peed or whatever. And then when he came back, we were stuck in sand in the middle of the desert. Like we pulled off and like, oh no, oh no. And we had to like, it was, I, I was just thinking like, even though we're, you know, half a mile from the highway. This could be it for us. Yeah, <laughs> like we are oh, no. dead. You get <laughs> you, you get that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that is that like that that animal feeling, that mm-hmm. gut feeling of like even when you're like 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 just like in between Vegas and uh, and L.A. Mm-hmm. and you're just driving on that. Uh, you know, there's no lights or anything like mm-hmm. that. Like I've done this before. Don't it, nobody do this. Nobody do this. But like I've I've like there's no other cars on the road. It's completely there are no street lights because I'm too far you know out into the wilderness. And I just like for a split second, I'm like, I wonder what this would look like <laughs> oh, without any lights at all. Oh, and, you know, and I turn off the lights and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> like or, or like you have to you really, really have to stop and pee. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you just like you. Ah, it, it, you 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 might as well be on the moon, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. how did we get here? Oh, we're <laughs> talking about our fe- like the, the fears and what they represent, and, right? And and yeah. Bates Motel—that's what it is, right? Yeah. The Bates Motel is that place. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. Let's let's get back to <laughs> let's get back to the top of this minute. Uh, um, the first few seconds of this minute. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Chris has just come from her daughter's bedroom. Um, if you remember, uh, where she tucked her in for the night, we see that she is troubled by everything that has just happened. Uh, remember, this is likely, uh, the first instance, uh, since Reagan's, uh, behavior at the party where she's able to, uh, breathe and really think about it. Um, she heads down the hall and to the little, uh, uh, landing where we then hear the sound of scrubbing. At least that's what the Amazon subtitles say. Um, a little odd that we've, uh, been out in this hallway for a while and we haven't heard it um maybe by design maybe willie was between scrubbings i don't know maybe friedkin just wanted us to have this moment with uh, chris more than anything else um but in any case chris turns uh when she hears it and now we hear it too we follow her a little ways downstairs and yes we see that willie is downstairs uh scrubbing the carpet and we can also see that all the guests have gone home yeah again i like this sort of what what we've been doing a lot is revealing parts of the geography of the house that we haven't quite put together for ourselves. Right. So to yeah. think that that um, we've seen Reagan peeing on that carpet and we're not really thinking about, well, where does that relate to the bedroom? Right. And mm-hmm. now we mm-hmm. discover that it's essentially directly under Reagan's bedroom where she's peeing. Right. So all of this stuff is, yeah, this this uh, this happened right under her bedroom. Which is and, right under the attic where Captain Howdy uh, is, or oh, the rats. Yeah. So if we draw, I wonder if anybody has done like a visual, uh, like like a mapping out of the McNeil house mm-hmm. and like, like you know, kind of like pointing out, it's like here are the uh, the areas of, uh, you know, all the all the different instances and stuff like that. Yeah, th- that's really interesting. It, it seems like this is a complete house that we could actually – go through some some movie spaces or tv spaces don't work they're impossible right. like um uh my favorite that i can think of right now is in darren aronofsky's mother have you seen that mm, no no I haven't. um it's a crazy house and it's like we see the outside of it and it's octagonal mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. And, but then at the same time you, the entire movie is following jennifer lawrence like i don't think there are any shots that doesn't don't have jennifer lawrence in them okay um and so there's a lot of wonders that were moving around the house with her and then some things happen where she's at the kitchen window and she's looking out at the kitchen window and she could see the front door mm-hmm. as someone's knocking on the front door but then we have to think like, well that doesn't make any sense if the house is essentially round octagonal right that's impossible and then that has a similar plot point where something um leaks from the attic to the different floors, the the second floor, the first floor, and into the basement. And mm-hmm. but then when you start to think of it, like no, it's actually impossible for those things to have lined up that way, right? Or um, uh, have you seen the uh, the breakdown people have done of um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's apartment? 
Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's an impossible space. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to send that to you. You can Google that um, okay. about yeah. Jerry Seinfeld's apartment, that the hallway doesn't make sense. Um, like the hallway would bleed into the kitchen. Um, so unless mm-hmm. the hallway is some uh, between him and, and uh, Cosmo Kramer's house, unless that was mm-hmm. some kind of weird zigzag Z shape for, for no reason, it, yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't work at all. Yeah. Yeah. The only one I can think of, um, and they, they have a podcast for this, guys, Room 237, mm-hmm. um, is actually, isn't that the name of the, also the documentary? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, that, that has all these, uh, uh, all these crazy theories. Um, almost conspiracy as, theories is the way they feel like, right? Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the document. We're not talking about the podcast. The podcast is great. Mm-hmm. Go check out room two two thirty seven. They uh, they also do Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yeah. Uh, and and I remember hearing about like yeah, like all these all these like these impossible uh, uh, bits of architecture in mm-hmm. the Overlook Hotel. Right, um, that's know. clearly designed to to be something you couldn't trace. You couldn't you couldn't plot it out. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's that that movie in The Shining. Um, the space seems to expand or contrast. Right, uh, like contract. Mm-hmm. Um, in The Streetcar Named Desire, when Elliot Kazan is directing that, he starts the house at one size and then. And each subsequent scene as Blanche is losing her mind, the house gets slightly smaller. Oh. Yeah. So he's a theater director. He's used to that sort of thing, right? So then, yeah, as the movie goes on, it's the movie, the house gets darker, but also the walls are coming in on her. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And I remember we talked in previous minutes about Reagan's bedroom uh, specifically seeming, um, you know, really small and cozy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when Reagan is, you know, like in the beginning of the film. And it just seems so like empty and big. Uh, you know, by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and do we know, like, is this, are, are we looking at two physical rooms or is this just like perspective or like what's, what's going oh, on here? That's a really good question. So this is a set, which is pretty incredible. Again, like how much we actually see of this house and how by the end of it, we, we do learn the geography of it. This is a set mm-hmm. built on a New York city soundstage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they build the walls and they stick, they stay there. Because mm-hmm. on a soundstage, you can remove the walls, right, that we're not seeing, right. and then put in, right. um, move the camera back and put in a longer lens, it's called. So, um, you know, you, you, that bathroom scene that I like is probably, they've probably taken the two walls out. There probably isn't, right. you know. They would have to. They Bathrooms would have are to. so tiny. Right. There's yeah. not a toilet there or anything like yeah. that. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that looks to me like they are, I don't know like seven feet at least away from the edge of the bathtub um, with right. the lens they have on there. Interesting. Wow. But so, you know, they, they don't necessarily need to change the um, the actual size of the set, but just pull out walls and then choose where the camera is and what lens to use. With a, yeah. a longer lens, you can have a camera further back. Um, mm-hmm. uh, again, cinematographers, I'm simplifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. But with a longer lens, allows you to, to have the camera further back um, than a wider lens, which you, you have to say, if you were shooting in a, in a bathroom and the walls weren't movable, use a wider lens, which, which happens to a lot of student films and, and um, beginning filmmakers where they're stuck in one lens and it distorts the film and stretches it out. Right, right. Bathrooms um, are but, awful to shoot in, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, so back to this house. Um, so like we said, it looks like uh, the guests have all gone home. Um, although it looks like um, like Chris, Willie is still in her uh, party clothes. It looks like the stereotypical French maid outfit, mm-hmm. which is to say it looks like a maid outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, I get, I, it, it's so hard for me to think of a time, like, like, there's a reason it's a costume. It's a costume because like it was a real thing at a time, at a certain time. Exactly. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Keenan, how, 
common is it for your maid and your butler to be married or <laughs> like related? Like I'm realizing now there seems to be like quite a lot of stories where they come like as a package deal, like either they're married or they're related, or I guess in the case of Rocky Horror, they're both. <laughs> right. um, but, but like, yeah. Like, oh, wait, you, wait, 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 <laughs> you, hmm. you, you were uh, riffraff, I imagine, right? Oh, yes, I yeah, was yeah, Riff Raff. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so when you were doing your work for Riff Raff did, uh, in the Rocky Arpic show, how did you deal with that, that your your girlfriend is your sister? Um, I just didn't think about it because <laughs> I, I personally don't even know why it was put in the film or the play uh, at all because it's it's a throwaway line by Dr. Frankenfurter and it, it's never mentioned again. Well, it's, you could, it's you, gross. It's shocking. If that's yeah, it's it. gross. It's shocking. But like – and I, I get it. Like we're supposed to be like uh, – yeah, like it's it's one thing that remains gross and shocking mm-hmm. about like those characters to this day, right. you know, like, I mean, like, because that movie, oh God, you know, and, and there's, I think there's like two, uh, maybe three Rocky Horror Minutes oh, good. Uh, out there. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I feel like the, the shocking elements of that story are not as shocking anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, like, ev- like a lot of what Frankenfurter and uh, the the party guests and the inhabitants of that house are and do has been you know normalized to right. the point where it's not like oh my god look at that Frank you know like Tim Curry's wearing makeup in a dress like no nah, right. that's you know that's that's like like everybody does that now yeah queer culture Ex- has won yeah except for the the incest thing between <laughs> Riff Raff and Magenta. Like right. that's the only thing. And, and also the fact that, that Dr. Frankenfurter is a villain and he, like he, he uses people and manipulate. He's right. He's that, bad. That he's bad has shifted. That's what I was going to say. That shifted because I, I interviewed the, um, the local cast of the Rocky art picture show. Now, um, maybe four years ago for a class I did on the cult film, I brought them into the class. They were wonderful. So you were in it. I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. I was in the and and I was in the shadow cast, guys. Right. Um so I was I was up there in front of the uh of of the screen um doing the we would do our little like gag version of the movie as the movie was going. Right. So I I interviewed the the current shadow cast um who do the Rocky Horror Picture Show and mm. and one of the things that um Wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 FFO? Yeah, Frankie's uh oh, <gasps> I should know what they stand for. Frankie's, <laughs> Frankie's favorite obsession. Favorite obsession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Well, I don't know if this if if this is on. I was I was in the rival team. I know. Team. I know. Okay, right. Oh, is that what? Oh, that's what you were. Okay. Oh no 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 no. So, so they they've said that um, when they started doing it, 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 right now it's a lot of um, women and non-binary femme people, right? Uh, and, and then trans trans femme people. And they said that mm-hmm. when they first started this current iteration, um, when they first started to do it, the rule was that the only people who could be in drag were men playing women characters because that was what was shocking. Right. And they were like, well, that's not like, okay, that's not fair. Right. I mean, like, like you see historically why that was the deal, because it's less shocking for a woman to dress as a man. That's just that's just not it. Right. Um, So they're like, that's not. So you're saying that the fun can only be had by less than half of the um, the gender out there. Right. Right. So they they fought against that. And so now they do whoever. And so, again, yeah, it's not it's not so much about shockingness. It's more about inclusion, which is not really what, you know, it was in the 70s. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is not about inclusion. It's about shocking the hell out of squares and normies. Right. Yeah. 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 And then what some people have said to me, not that cast, but other people said that the the it has shifted that one of the things that bothers people is that um, basically Frankenfurter, who is the villain, right, has sex with Brad and Janet without their consent, basically. 
Right. right. He, he shows up in their bed pretending to be somebody else, which is rape. I mean, if, if yes. they hadn't found that out. So like he he's intending to rape them and then they they end up um, consenting, you know, very briefly right before. Right. right? And like, well, that's not cool. Uh, you have Frankenfurter. <laughs> not cool. Right. Not cool. Right. Right. And when in 1975, that was just that was just plain funny. Yeah, it was. It, it's so weird to think about. And the shocking thing was that Frankenfurter was a guy right. dressing up as a girl. And like we didn't even like re- like the other thing was like a Looney Tunes. Yes. Um, uh, mistaken identity, like like almost as if he were like wearing a mask or something like that. Right. Like that was the wow. Oh, Keenan, we were gross back then. <laughs> well, you you and I weren't alive in 1975. Just to uh, okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, to yeah. be clear. But yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that Bugs Bunny would do to Elmer Fudd. Yeah, right. Like you're trying to shoot me, but let me let me get this. I'll get you. I will trick you into sleeping with me. I'm Bugs Bunny. Yeah, there we go. I had, um, oh God, we're going off, we're going off the rails. Um, I had a, uh, do you remember those short films that I did with the mime and everything like that? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I can't watch the third one anymore. Oh. Um, because there, the third one introduces like, uh, so I, I played this, this mime who was like in love mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he's, he's going after, uh, this girl. Actually, I can't watch the first one either. I don't like the first one either. Cause the, the first one is a little bit like, uh, like stalkery and gross. Um, and then the last one is like his twin brother, um, like chases, uh, uh, the girl character are like through a series of like Scooby-Doo doors. Mm-hmm. Like he's, like he's Pete. Right. Chasing Minnie, mm-hmm. you know, to, to give her like a smooch. Right. And, I'm like, ooh, I, mm, no, 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 no. <laughs> like that, that, like that, ah, there, there was a time when we thought that that was like, ugh. yeah, we didn't, well, we didn't even think about it. It's so ingrained as like part of the comedy language that we just never thought about what we're actually saying. Right. Which is the problem. Yeah. And I, I was, I was literally like, oh, you know, I've seen this in Mickey. Like, yep. I, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do this. He's a villain. He'll, he'll, you know, do that. Right. Um, but ugh, heroes no. do it too. I mean, in the, in the first Mickey Mouse short called playing crazy. Um, <gasps> I just saw that. Oh, you saw playing crazy. Yeah. I just, I just, it was on TikTok. I was like, oh my God, yeah. Mickey, what the Yeah. Fuck? Mickey, Mickey tries to kiss Minnie and she clearly says no. And he, he tries to kiss her anyways. And by the end of it, he gets her right. He wins the girl. Um, so yeah, that's just how we kept reinforcing those ideas over and over and over again. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> let's just get back to Willie and Carl, who are brother and sister and husband and wife, yeah. you were saying. Yes, yes. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> That's not the big secret that Carl is hiding. No. <laughs> no, but a lot of, I mean, the reason why I think a lot of, it wouldn't be uncommon for a maid and a butler to be married is because we're often, um, it's often a class thing, right? Ah, so who becomes okay. a maid and who becomes a butler are are the lower classes. And so, you know. There, you you can't. Uh, unlike in the movies, the maid isn't going to marry the the master of the house, or like, um, I guess the sound of music is based on a true story, <laughs> but that's the governess marrying the the captain. Um, you know, that's not that's not um, how do you say that's not a very practical uh, a practical uh, marriage plan, right? Yeah, that doesn't. The, the reason it was made into a movie was because it was an right, unusual occurrence. Very, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the captain is supposed to marry the baroness, and the baroness is fucking pissed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but like the idea of the maid, right? We don't think mm-hmm. about it a lot. The reason that they're called maids is because they used to be unmarried women. That's who would become maids. Oh, oh, like maiden. Yeah, maid. mm-hmm. yeah oh, exactly. Okay. So that's who it used to be is like, oh, you don't have, you know, you're not going to hire Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Lundergaard to do it. You're going to hire an unmarried woman because no one else would want to. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, so in the book, we get a little bit more insight into uh, Willie and Carl's relationship. They go on several dates, um, although we never see them. We only hear about them from uh, Willie. And during the time of the story, they're sort of having a little, I don't know if uh, fight is the right word, but let's say like a communication problem Mm -hmm. um, and communication could be better, Mm -hmm. right? And Chris 
asks Willie uh, several times how the dates go throughout the story. And the first one, Willie wanted to go see the Beatles, mm. uh, but Carl drags them to an art house film about Mozart because, of course, because of Carl. Oh, um, what would that but, be? Uh, Not Amadeus. That's too early. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we're we're like citing, uh, you know, uh, Paul Schofield in Lear mm-hmm. later on. So like they're talking about real things, real movies. Right. So I don't know what an, what an art 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 house film in 1970, um, you know, about Mozart would be. I only know Amadeus. There must be something else. Do you know Listomania? No, which Listomania. is about List. Um, that's a that's a fun movie. That is by. Um, Oh shoot! When you when you bring up things on the fly, you don't remember <laughs> everybody. It's it's starring Roger Daltrey of the Who, and okay. it's directed by the guy who did Tommy with the Who, and his okay. name is uh, something important, uh, Ken Russell. <laughs> so there we go. so there he goes. So Ken Russell. It's Listomania, and so it's uh, about Franz Liszt, and it's Roger Daltrey playing the piano, and he's like this sex symbol, and so it's mm. like it's like shooting Liszt as if it were a Beatles film. And the, and the women in the crowd are going crazy. I don't think they literally throw their panties, but things like that, <laughs> right. you know? Um, so that's a really interesting movie, but that's, that's about Liszt, not Mozart, but. Right, right. Huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Movies about Liszt. That's an even shorter. Uh, <laughs> list. List. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some jokes, some jokes, they fly. Some jokes, they don't. Um, well, we keep them in anyways. We keep them we in. We let you decide at the extra spin. Yes. This is choose your own adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so uh, Keenan. How do you think these two met? Willie and Carl? Yeah. Well, geez, let me think. So Willie was probably about three and her mother took her into the observation ward and said, this is your little brother, Carl. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to let that go. You want them so much to be brother and sister. Well, since you brought it up, you're the one who brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) They're not riffraff and agenda. (laughs) No, you're the only riffraff. You know, <laughs> I remember doing the time warp. <laughs> there were no rats. <laughs> oh my god! No. So how did they? How did they? Meet? I don't know. I I imagine it's very like like because it's just like like the de- like forcing forcing your 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 wife or your girlfriend to go on a like go to a like a boring movie you know um to go see some, to go see Shakespeare to go see like you know an art house film about Mozart. I'm like what what like what what. What grabbed you, Willie? What what drew you? What drew you? What is it about this guy, Carl? Well, it was like he was the only one in my village who was my age and my class. Oh, well, there, you go. <laughs> there just weren't there just right. weren't a lot of a lot of choices. Right. No. Everyone was too rich or too poor, and everyone mm-hmm. else was married. Mm-hmm. There you yeah, go. Yeah. That's the sad. That's the that's it. That's how it works in Switzerland yeah. in 1930 uh, Switzerland. Yeah, I just I just want to. Imagine Carl flirting and what, what that would be like. Like, how did he, how did he win her over? He's like, your eyes are like, uh, like an overcast day in Munich. This is acceptable to me. <laughs> I will accept your proposal in, in the manner which, which it was given. <laughs> we're not saying that Germans don't have humor. We're, we're no. saying that Carl, well, Carl's Swiss. Right, they're so, Swiss. You know, right. Doesn't he? Yeah, they're Swiss, yeah. But we're we're saying Carl uh, Carl's humor is is um somewhat lacking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah. But yeah, he you know, he got Willie and 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 good for good him for and, him. and good for Willie. Right. Yeah. Good for both of them. Hope they're happy. Uh later on another date, uh Chris asks how it went and we find out that Carl let her go to see the Beatles by herself so that he could go off somewhere else. And that's when Blatty chimes in um and says the time was 7:35. 
And that's supposed to give us a little sliver of doubt, like where was Carl at the time? Because that time is around the time that Burke is found dead. Oh, wow. Okay. So when Burke is found dead at 735 on this night that we're seeing, Willie is here in the movie. So we don't see where Carl is. So right. in the book, um, mm-hmm. this is while the Beatles are still together. But in the in the real world, the Beatles have broken up in 1970. <gasps> Wait, is, is this an inconsistency? In Carl's alibi? <laughs> Well, no, this would be this would be Willie's alibi. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, there's there's other inconsistencies in, in Carl's alibi we're going to get to. OK, but this is Willie saying it. Willie Willie was like, uh, you know, he lets me to, he, he lets me go see the Beatles, uh, you know, by myself. So she went right? to see the Beatles in concert, I guess, or a movie, a Beatles movie. I wonder, is there, is there a Beatles movie? Yeah, there's a Beatles movie after the Beatles broke up called Let It Be, which I believe is 1972. You know what? That's what she must mean in the book Uh because, because they're like, it's, it's this argument about what movie to go see. Okay. And they go, they go from, uh, you know, she wants to go see the Beatles (laughs) and they go to see this art house film about Mozart. And then later on, he says that like he went by himself to see the, the King Lear movie. Mm -hmm. So it must be that they went to see a Beatles movie and not the Beatles. Yeah. The beat. So yeah, let it be comes out in 1970, the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. so that might be what it is. Cause they can go and see that, you know, for a couple years afterwards, movies used to be in theaters for, um, a while. Um, so it's now five months is like the, the, the typical maximum that a movie is in theaters it keeps shrinking yeah. and shrinking they call it windows in the industry like the the window of time that's in, in um in the theaters but yeah it used to be that movies could be like the exorcist the exorcist itself was in theaters for over a year yeah but the exorcist was special that, that was like in and of itself it was like um i mm-hmm. didn't they didn't they keep it uh in theaters like in ex- like even like comparatively for that time like even longer than yes yes but movies yes the exorcist and the godfather and things of like that stayed in theaters much longer but it wouldn't be atypical for a movie to be out over a year at this time period um because they wouldn't open all at once like the way they do now so um oh. that would sort of change with jaws where it opened up on 300 screens all in the same weekend Oh, and now, okay. now let me think. What was the big movie? Um, like Puss in Boots might have been the, the last major studio release, as we're uh, talking now. And that that would be on almost four thousand, if not more, screens at once on the same day. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so yeah. So sometimes you know a movie would open in L.A. and New York, and then not get to Washington for several months or maybe half a year afterwards. Oh wow! Yeah. Hmm. So that's yeah. that's shifted since since the time of The Exorcist. Yeah. And nowadays, I mean, like, like uh, we have like movies coming out in theaters and then on the same day, yes. they'll be like at home. You can like, you know, open up your laptop yep. and day and, and, and date. Them. Yeah. Yeah. I took my boyfriend to see a Disney movie called Strange World um, mm-hmm. in the theaters, which is pretty good. It's not as bad as a lot of people said. Um, but uh, we got home and opened Disney Plus to watch The Simpsons and Strange World was there. And I just scrolled past it. So we didn't see like. We could have stayed home. <laughs> I knew it was on Disney Plus. I just didn't want to have that conversation. Because like, I'd rather see the movie in theaters, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Shot, yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I miss I miss the theater experience. I want to go out again. It's it, like it, we're we're still kind of like slowly getting well. At, at least me, and, and I think uh, you know uh, some other folks too. Like still getting clo- you know uh, used to the idea of like uh, you know going back out mm-hmm. and uh, you know going to theaters and things like that. And I really want to. Yeah, I want to go see a movie. Yeah. If uh, if Carl lets you. If Carl lets me, right? Yeah. Maybe he'll let me go see it by myself. And uh, well, he goes off and murders a man. I mean, no, that's not what he did. Um, Okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah. And I do find it really interesting that in the book, at least we're a little uncertain about uh, Carl. Mm -hmm. 
from uh, from this point on because of his uh, history with Burke and because of this glaring inconsistency where we don't know where he was. And, you know, he just happened to go off somewhere alone at that time. But, you know, we'll get to that soon enough. Yeah, the yeah. movie and I'm sure the book is even more so of like a, a, mis- a murder mystery, right? Yeah, yeah. The movie there, becomes there is, like a murder mystery, kind of, sort of, for a little while. Yes, yes. And even Blatty has has put forth that he wasn't trying to write a horror novel. He was trying to write a supernatural detective story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that, like, like for a little bit of it, we're supposed to, like, wonder about uh, Carl. Right. We're supposed to be like, maybe he did, you know, like, have something to do with this. Um, and, yeah, folks, I know we're spending a lot of this minute talking about Willie and Carl, um, but that's because their parts have sort of been reduced in the film. And so every chance that I see them on screen, I, I, I like, I, I feel like I got to tell a little bit of their story, um, but also not give away the big spoiler uh, if you are reading along with us in the book. So I hope I'm doing an okay job of uh, keeping things nice and balanced. Yes, I'm still afraid to read the book. I'm on page 11 <laughs> of the book. I've read the Iraq <laughs> prologue. And I, I, so I don't know the secret about William Carl. So, oh, folks, write in the exorcist minute at gmail.com <laughs> and, and, and cajole and, 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 and pester my co host into reading the rest of the book. It's so, it's so like cute and funny at, at points and endearing. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's creepy. Like, honestly, though, I, I, I think just for the writing, I say it, it's really well written. Um, and I just like. want to defend myself that it's not that I'm not a reader, it's just I'm specifically mm. afraid of this book. So, since we started doing this podcast and I said, you know what, Lester, I'm going to to read this book for you i've read <laughs> roald dahl's matilda <laughs> i've read um um upton sinclair's the jungle i've read eb white's uh, shrunken white's elements of style because <laughs> anything i can do to not read the exercise and i'm reading uncle tom's cabin right now so wow <laughs> wow oh my goodness uh, I, I, I'm just going to start sending you like little snippets of the audiobook. Um, oh no! <laughs> like I used to send pictures of uh, Captain Howdy to my friend Kyle. Oh, re- oh, really? Well, I, I I I did it like twice, and and the first time was um, I said, "Hey, I'm going to text you this picture of Captain Howdy," which he didn't know what it was. He didn't know he he'd uh-huh. seen the movie, but he wasn't familiar with enough that he knows who Captain Howdy is. So right. So we were on an early version of Skype, and I sent that to him, and then I saw his reaction going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like so terrified. <laughs> So I did it one more time because then I was funny, but I thought it was funny, but no, you know, it's mm-hmm. not cool to keep doing that. Scare the crap. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. So anyway, we, uh, before we can learn any more about Carl and Willie, um, we are interrupted by a scream from upstairs, uh, from the room we were just in. Chris runs back up the stairs and we get a brief shot of one of the candles on the wall as it flickers, affected by the force of some, uh, unseen malevolent energy. Um, just um, to be clear, it's not a candle candle. It's a, oh, it's an right. electric candle. It's like a, yes. a bulb that looks like a candle. Right. 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 It's a, yeah, th- this, this house is, um, a little bit inconsistent with its like real candles and with its <laughs> fake candles right we got we got real candles like uh like right by the door by the the, the guest book as they're as they're having the party and then we got like these real candles up on yeah, the, okay. or these these uh these uh light bulb candles that's why mary joe likes it so much the admirable the admiral who used to live here <laughs> he, he put in all these fake candles and all these uh these real candles with the mixture like admirals yeah, yeah. do Yep, right. This is a typical admiral. Um, typical admiral move right there. Um, Keenan, we we talked about this before with the desecration. You know how we remember we talked about how we like the idea better of like the the desecration of the Virgin Mary mm-hmm. statue happening like 
magically, right. like organically, right? Like it just like the vicinity, the 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 nearness of the demon is causing like this like aftershock, this this ripple effect. Just the fact that he's close by right. affects uh, the the real world environment in these like weird ways, right? Same as like the clock uh, in uh, in the um, the Arab curator's uh, uh, office, mm-hmm. right, where uh, where Father Marin turns and the, the clock is stopped, right, um, and we're going to see later on, like during the like the exorcism scene, like like things are breaking, things are cracking, things are you know like all of this kind of like stuff in the physical realm is being affected by this like power um, or this like this this struggle, like you could say, like the force of the, the the will of the priests and the will of the demon is like like breaking things in the real world, right, right, um, and it has like it, but it has no visual shape. We can't see things striking other things, right? Yeah, um, I think that's really um, interesting that that's the way because it's a movie. That's the way that we mm-hmm. have to visualize this kind of thing in a horror film, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. this this energy, this force, this spiritual thing that has its foot in two different dimensions. Um, mm-hmm. So it has to affect something physical, or else we couldn't see it, right? It has to be right, um, not just a wind, but it has to affect curtains or leaves or precisely right it can't just give you like a feeling of foreboding because how do you capture that on you know like screen you have to see like this little light bulb flickering or something like that. there's this there's this great i think great book by michael Crichton, who i think is an underrated author because he has well he's kind of like stephen king he writes so much Mm -hmm. so some of them are just not that great you know and then some people can focus on that but but michael Crichton, when, when stephen king or michael Crichton hit it out of the park. They really hit it out of the park, right? Yes. So Michael Crichton has this book called Sphere, which is about this thing that lives under the ocean and scientists go down and get there. Um, And it manifests some of their, their fears in, um, in real uh, monsters, like a, Mm. um, a a sea squid, a giant squid attacks them and that kind of thing. But then Mm. one of the characters, um, their fears are manifest just in this energy. And that's Mm. this major point in the movie, how some people's fears are manifested by, um, by the sea creatures down there they're at the bottom of the ocean like the marianas trench um and then one of the characters their fears are just this unknowable thing out there that you can't see fantastic Mm. for a book it just does not make a movie so some of you might have seen the barry levinson movie with uh dustin hoffman sharon stone and sam jackson this great cast Mm -hmm. great director great cast but it's just not a film Mm. yeah so here you know we have captain howdy or whoever doing all this stuff and it means my my light bulbs are flicking on and off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> we gotta get something. Like, you know, and it's like like Captain Howdy is like so I don't know, like he's at the height of his power. Mm-hmm. He's so present, he's so like potent right now that like he's literally making the electricity like go wonky. Um yeah, I don't know. Like um I would have liked uh, one of the light bulbs to shatter rather than just kind of like flicker on and right. off. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. it's like oh, it's a matter of like timing, right? Like is that is this the time for that? I don't know. Mm, yeah oh yeah because we want to ramp it up right right we don't want to we don't want to and we're gonna and we're just gonna see this terrible thing happening to the daughter right oh yeah we're literally we don't want to over over uh, upstage the uh upstage my light bulbs (laughs) my light bulbs (laughs) (laughs) yeah mother come in here hang on hang on on. we gotta carl do you have any replacement light bulbs need to find get a broom or something (laughs) she's just out there like like for five minutes just (laughs) No, no, Willie, don't step on. Get your shoes back on. There's there's broken glass, Willie. <laughs> and Willie's is like, I literally just finished cleaning up the pee. I want to go home. Oh, no, wait, no. I think they live there, too. They yeah. must live there. Yeah. All that to say, like, I personally really like um, – this kind of thing, like when the when the outside environment is is affected, um, and, and like I said, we're going to see more of it later. This idea that something 
uh, so big is in the room with you that the spiritual world almost can't contain all of it. And so it's like leaking out mm-hmm. into the physical world, right? right? And we'll see later when two characters are involved in a struggle of will, something, you know, you necessarily can't see, mm-hmm. the environment around them is being affected, um, you know, by that struggle. Right. Um, however, this this makes me wonder about what we see in a couple of seconds. Um, so we are with Chris now as she runs to her daughter's door in what I'm sure I've seen a hundred times in trailers and TV spots and whatnot. It's almost unmistakable now. Uh, show me a single frame of this uh, with Chris holding up the skirt uh, of her party dress as she runs to the door, her back to us. The image is all over the advertising and the memory and the impact of this film, mm-hmm. right? Is this, is this like shot right here? Um, and it happens so quickly. We really got to pause here and take time to examine this one shot. Keenan. Am I wrong in getting sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, like like Cinderella, Disney princess rushing because time has run out vibe? Like I, I can't think of any reason to feel this other than what she's wearing and how she's running, except also the camera is being very like cinematic. Mm-hmm. Like this, this few seconds of uh, her here running to the door, the camera is doing so much in the way that it follows her, uh, as if, as if we're a Disney prince who's chasing <laughs> her, like, like, wait, you, you almost had a good life. You know, <laughs> your slipper. Right. Mm-hmm. Except we're not chasing her folks and she's not running away from anything. She is chasing something else. She is running to the danger. She's not a damsel in distress or, or maybe she is, but not in the way that we normally see. She is both a princess and, and the, uh, the hero running to save another damsel. Love it. Yeah, you are not wrong to say that it looks like Cinderella. It does, of course, specifically the Disney Cinderella, right? Uh, in that blue dress running um, running down the stairs here. Um, mm-hmm. I teach a class on Walt Disney. That, that's one of my specialties in, t- in film history. So I, I, tr- I mm. don't want to go too far off on it. But like the impact that those movies had on this filmmaker uh, generation um, just cannot be um, cannot be overstated. Like like those were the most famous most artful films of the 1930s, right? Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And um, and then in the 40s, there are fewer Disney films, but Pinocchio, Bambi, Dumbo, and then picking it back up with Cinderella after the war, like mm-hmm. these are incredibly impactful films. Like you, you like the impact of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves um, is just, just fundamental to what film history is. But of course, it's not really like horror films, right? They're a completely under, under looked at um, source of inspiration, right? They're seen as like a lesser than uh, type of film. So yeah. So even if Friedkin, even if you don't have a smoking gun where Friedkin says, I like Disney, (laughs) he did. Everybody did. Yeah. Everyone was. And like in snow and the seven dwarves, there were shots that were impossible for them to do with a real camera. So they were way ahead of their time and they helped invent a film language for uh, the generation of kids who saw that, who then became the filmmakers of the 60s and 70s. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically of, I mean, not to go off on another tangent here, folks, but like I was thinking back on um, the uh, one of the first times that we see uh, uh, the hag, right? Mm-hmm. Like the thing that, that um, you know, the Wicked Queen changes into um, as she, uh, you know, as she visits Snow White's or, or I guess the dwarves uh, uh, home, mm-hmm. there's this, there's this really, really cool scene where you know snow white turns and she gasps and you know we don't we don't see what she's Mm -hmm. seeing but then all of a sudden uh the camera goes to the window and uh the hag is just kind of like you know leaning in and she's looking at snow white and when once she sees that we're seeing her she like she's very still and she just kind of like slowly smiles Mm -hmm. like got him you know um and it like it 
when I first saw that, that said to me, it's like this movie is telling us that animation doesn't have to be um, fast paced and played in a loop and, you know, people doing like flips and back, you know, and, and jumping jacks and like lots of like weird kind of like pyrotechnics, aerodynamics, the way that you would see like, you know, the silly symphonies and the, um, uh, uh, you know, the Disney shorts, mm-hmm. right? Steamboat Mickey and, and, and all yeah, that. Steamboat Willie, just um, so we don't get a correction there. Steamboat oh, Willie. <laughs> right. Steamboat, Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. Um, Steamboat Carl and Steamboat Willie. Um, but, uh, you know, like those are, those are kind of like very like fast paced and action packed and everything like that. And like one of the, I guess the, the, the contributions of like, uh, uh, of Snow White, just this very still menacing scene of, you know, you seeing the, the witch or the hag kind of just like smiling. Mm-hmm. And I, I just remember like getting shit. I was like, oh, yeah. And, but those movies are, in, are pushing the boundaries of what film language is before they could actually be done in a technological sense in live mm. action cameras. Um, mm. And so you look at Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which is from 1937, it's as sophisticated as any film from the late 50s, you know. Um, and Cinderella, which is, you know, maybe second tier Disney, you know, it's not Snow White or Pinocchio or Bambi right. um, or Fantasia, but it is, it is as modern looking as a seventies film for sure. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's decades ahead of its time. Yeah. 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 Um, and yes. So back to this specific princess, um, as, uh, we open this door into darkness, Chris switches on a light and it doesn't do much to alleviate the darkness. Mm-hmm. It's still very dark in there. We'll see in a couple of shots that's, uh, that it's only a single bedside lamp. Um, but what it does here while we're still framed in the doorway is it creates a stark line between light and shadow. You see from our position behind Chris, the, the, the frame hasn't switched yet. The shot hasn't switched. We're still behind her as she opens the door. We don't see what she's seeing. Um, but we see now that her face is bathed in that light uh, coming from inside the room while behind her looming on the door is her shadow Mm -hmm. so crisp and so clear it might be cut from fabric Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking about it even as i'm saying this even as i'm uh you know talking about this this scene right here is telling us there is no more ambiguity there is no gray there is no half light the darkness and the shadows are making themselves known in this scene they are here in all their strength and all their uh, uh terrible clarity the demon is making himself known uh and yes we will still have ambiguity later that is that is by design but in this moment uh, uh much like the starkness of of the white face in the black void that reagan saw back in the hospital for a split second this is a smile and a wink this is a howdy <laughs> right this is this is uh, uh, Howdy saying it's like hey there 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 might be more wrong with your daughter than you think. This, if we're thinking about the screenwriting terms, is mm-hmm. is uh, a turning point within Act One. We're still in Act One because <laughs> we haven't still in Act One. Yes, but this is a turning point that we. This might be what screenwriters call the inciting incident because this is for um, for Chris the moment where she we know she's been in a horror movie, but now Chris knows she's in a horror movie, right? Yes, yeah. Yes. This this exact close up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the supernatural thing that she witnesses that like she can't she can't say like, oh, my daughter's lying about her mm-hmm. bed shaking anymore. She can't say, oh, the noises are this. Oh, oh, this is all, you know, kind of like uh, psychosomatic, like inside the head or anything like Take that. Take your Ritalin. Right? Everything right, exactly, will be fine. Right? <laughs> she comes, she, she opens the door. She turns on the light. It's like, honey, you didn't take your Ritalin, did you? <laughs> That's why that bed is right. shaking. Once, once, uh, once Willie cleans up this glass, I'll get you your Ritalin. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my god! <laughs> but yeah, okay. Like, like not to not to diminish the like the the horror of this scene, right? So, um, and and yeah, perhaps to emphasize it, uh, uh like we say, like Keenan said, we get this shot of Mom's face full on, but for only a few frames, enough for us to register the horror that she feels at at what she is seeing. It's it's so fast, folks. Much like the Captain Howdy face, it it flashes before our eyes, and and we don't uh really have time uh for details, but but we do get a feeling. Mm-hmm. Again, we've lingered on these. Uh, these actors' faces before, the camera has forced us to look at them for long mm-hmm. periods of time. And we've been rewarded with some amazing performances by these actors, but Ellen Burstyn only needed literally a second, and I timed mm-hmm. it on Amazon, literally a second, uh, to share with us and to pass on that terror that she is feeling in this scene. Um, and then we see uh, what she sees. And Keenan, what is she seeing? What are we seeing here? Oh boy, this is this this bed is is shaking. <laughs> not 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 psychosomatic. Not no <laughs> no no. Not it's jumping up and down. Um, mm. The script says that the bed should be moving back and forth. And then as the filmmakers have interpreted that, what back and forth means is that it is um, shaking on you know every every axis it could. Right, yeah, head to yeah. toe, left to right, up and down. It, it's doing mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. it possibly be doing. Yeah, yeah. There is there is absolutely no way to to think that Reagan is doing right. this. Um, and that's one of the th- like later on, um, the doctors are saying it's like, well, you know, it's like in 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 uh, times of high stress, like she could be like so um, uh, upset and mm-hmm. irritated that she could be like moving the bed on her own as she moves, and 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 like this is after. Uh, this scene and and Chris looks at this doctor's like you are a fucking. <laughs> Do you know um you know how in cartoons when someone gets electrocuted and they they shoot across the room? Oh uh, yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, from what I've heard, what I've read and heard is that um that does happen to people, and it's and oh. you might think okay, so you think oh that's because they get shocked and the power of the the, the electricity shoots them across the room, but right. it's actually it's it's a it's a reflex response in the human body. Oh. Yes, that you get attacked by this energy in a way that your body doesn't know what the hell to do with it. So you mm-hmm. you jump like a rabbit in ways that you wouldn't be able to normally. Your body's just taking control and go blah. <laughs> You're across oh. the room. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So so that jolt is not like the force of the electricity. Right. It's it's us reacting to yes. it. Interesting. So that's what Doctor Klein might be saying, right? Like it's some kind of thing that your daughter doesn't she doesn't have control of her body and she's yeah. But no 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 definitely not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that bed is mis- unmistakably uh, uh, moving on its own. And Chris is there now to witness it. It is jumping. It is bucking up and down um, to where Reagan is like bouncing on it like a rag doll. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get we get a brief shot of, uh, of Chris's POV from the doorway with Reagan's uh, uh, back to us. And then we're suddenly on the other side of the bed on Reagan's level facing her. Um, like almost like freaking is again, putting us in the position of a concerned parent. Like, like we're running to the bedsides, like honey, what's wrong? Right. Um, and in this shot, you can see even more clearly just how she is flying off that bed. I, I almost wondered if this maybe wasn't Linda Blair. I thought like, maybe this could be Eileen Dietz, like our first, uh, you know, aside from the captain howdy, like our first, like, um, you know, stunt, uh, uh performance mm-hmm. by Eileen Dietz. Um, but I paused and no, it's, it's definitely, uh, Linda, but then, oh my God, I kind of wish I hadn't paused mm-hmm. because she does not look at all happy with what's going on here. Um, and I, we, we did a little bit of research just to, just to confirm right before uh, the recording of this. Um, but I, neither of us think, um, that this is one of the injury scenes, right? Right. Yeah. So there is another bed scene. So I wanted to double check, but there's another bed scene that is mu- even more extreme than this one, um, that mm-hmm. required Linda Blair to be on a harness and that she got injured on. 
Right. Exactly. But that's not this that's one. That's not this one. However, um, this this scene apparently is shot after another one uh, in which Ellen Burstyn was injured, and this this time permanently. She still, to this day, has permanent injury to her spine. Um, yes. So Ellen Burstyn, in a couple of shots from now, will jump on the bed to try to help um, Linda Blair's character out. And mm-hmm. um, there's been uh, some reporting from Ellen Burstyn that when she was doing this, it was aggravating her injury from earlier. Yes. So um, that instance has not happened yet in the film where uh, the, the the scene in which Ellen Burstyn like injures her back for real. Right. But so I guess this this specific scene was shot uh, out of order at like after that. That's scene? from what I understand. Yes. Yeah. So then, so she has uh, the actor has already injured her back. Well, no, she has no, injured her no, back. no, no, no. Three King has injured <laughs> right. her back. Um, uh, and, and so now she's being forced to, to do this scene with a, with a bad back. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So very unfortunate there. So they do build three different beds from what I also Mm. read, um, for different levels of, of, uh, special effects. So, well, you know, there might be four beds, right? Cause there's probably a bed that's just regular bed, a normal bed, (laughs) right? bed, bed. Right. So there's at least three beds. I don't know if they would have spent time, um, with one of these special effects beds just to use it for the regular one, but maybe, maybe so. So there's at least three beds, this, this trick bed move, another one that's more extreme in which Linda Blair gets injured. And then a third one, which is, um, a levitation of the bed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of beds. Yeah. That also Um, makes it a little bit difficult. Sometimes you're reading about different sources and they're talking about the bed scene because whoever's writing about it is like, this is the bed scene that's important because I'm talking about this or that, right? But there's at least three major scenes with Linda Blair's bed. Right. With Reagan's yeah. bed. This is, a, this is the lightsaber fight in Star Wars. <laughs> Great. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, the, like the bed is such a is is such a uh, an iconic set pi- set piece mm-hmm. from from this movie. So much so that like when you get those little like Funko Pops or those little action figures, mm-hmm. it like Reagan is usually like like part of her her toy is like the right. bed. She might even be like the same piece of plastic, mm-hmm. like like welded into the bed, right? right? But uh, yeah. Now compared to uh, the the other scene where she does get injured, I guess this one is a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. This 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 stunt that's happening right now. I mean, she's not she's not strapped into anything but i just keep thinking like one wrong bump right uh and and she goes flying off the bed and hits the floor you know or or like like her head or her neck comes down when the bed is going up you know and then just crack yeah it it sounds unfortunately that the um that the thing that injured linda blair in the next bed scene is the act is the safety harness right so so um so that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I'm I'm safety on set uh, really bothers me when things go wrong. But yeah, that was specifically mis misplaced uh, safety equipment. Or I, I would say, well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But it, it sounds more like it was a misplaced trust in the safety equipment that be, oh, because yes. we have the safety harness, we could do whatever the hell we want to this 13 year old girl. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> anyway, okay, so yeah, uh, we cut then to another shot of mom looking horrified, uh, and the camera does a quick pan from her to Reagan, and now we're at the foot of the bed. Wait, why Why are we at the foot of the bed? We were at Reagan's side, and again, again, I can't help but think, like when we were peeking through the banister at the party or hiding deeper in the attic looking at Chris, whose eyes are we looking out of right now as he glances from mom's terrified face 
uh, to his own handiwork, this chaos that he has caused with this little girl's bed, it really feels like Captain Howdy is now here, right? In the same room as us. This has not happened yet, right? He's in the same room. Uh, he's not hiding behind furniture. He's not watching us from the shadows, right? He is the third presence in this room. And as he glances from mom to Reagan, we are we are surprised. And, and I think he is surprised um, by mom entering the frame jumping on the bed. I don't think he was expecting that. I, I, I know, yes, I, this is a lot of speculation on my part, but I am, I am, I am building an image of our Captain Howdy character here based, based on the book and based on my own uh, uh, headcanon. I think he didn't expect mom to run towards the danger to immediately dive onto the bed. I think this, I think his objective here was to repel um, and it didn't work. And that's why in both the book and the movie, we don't get to see what happens next because I think it just stops. I think he gives up. Um, there's no escalation or or we would have seen it, right? So this is a loss, um, but it was so flashy and so terrifying. And we, we jump from here to the next scene so suddenly that we might not notice that the scene ends in an embrace. Mm-hmm. That's a loss by Captain Howdy. That's a fail. He tried to drive them apart and he brought them together. And so we don't even get to see the rest of the scene. It's almost like Captain Howdy's like embarrassed. He's like, ah, this scene is boring. Let's let's watch something else. Nothing to see here. You know, right, right. a mother's love. I mean, his ex, a mother's love, no. his ex-wife Lamashi would have uh, thrown the baby out no. the window, right? Right, exactly. Like, you're shaking this big, get out this fucking window. <laughs> this hunting <laughs> window. This is my bed. <laughs> I'm renting this bed. <laughs> That's the Lamashi move. Right. But Captain Howdy, sorry, we we did see it It, here on the Exorcist Minute where we make it a point to examine, extrapolate and excavate this film minute by terrifying minute. We saw it. Um, This is a point to the McNeil family. Right. And folks, if you're following along at home, if you're keeping score, if you're watching the film, if you're reading the book, I want you to pay special attention to how our characters react to this demon's uh, antics. It'll be hard because his antics are going to be big and loud and flashy and scary. And perhaps that is by design bells and whistles and pyrotechnics. Perhaps this is uh, misdirection. So focus on our heroes, focus on how they respond, what they do, and also what they don't do. Because sometimes he's trying to get them to do something and it doesn't work. Folks, this scene in the book is the very last moment of part one. Remember, Blatty has broken it up. Part one is titled The Beginning and part two is The Edge. And as we get closer uh, to The Edge, folks, I want to I wanna let you in on why I decided to make this podcast. We are getting closer. We are edging closer to a final battle between good and evil. But before that final confrontation, all throughout this story, in fact, subtle hints are being planted. Little battles are being fought. And sometimes they're so little and so subtle, we don't even notice them. Um, We are edging closer to my thesis statement. Even as we edge closer to the final battle between good and evil, um, there is a voice that is whispering to us throughout this film, but most of the time it is so small and so quiet that we can't hear it, especially because that other voice is so loud. But listen, watch, pay attention to our heroes, pay attention to that voice because maybe it's just their collective voice. Maybe it's something that a lot of people miss. I, I, I sometimes wonder if Friedkin and even Blatty missed it because it really is that subtle. But it's the reason I'm doing this podcast and I'm so glad you guys are coming with me on this journey. And I'm so glad, Keenan, that you're here with me as we go through this thing. Um, folks, this was accidental. Speaking of that subtle voice, that message, this podcast, this minute, 
bridges two scenes in which one character is in trouble and another character comes to help. I I really think that Friedkin was trying to scare us with the ending of this scene. Uh, watching it the way that we are watching it, however, uh, we're not looking at it scene by scene. We're looking minute by minute. And sometimes that can feel a little janky, like we're, we're not supposed to see the story this way. But it also made me realize, folks, that this minute bridges two scenes in which one character is in trouble and another character comes to save them. That's a peek behind the curtain. That's something that I think we might miss if we're looking at this scene by scene, right? Love and friendship and loyalty are not loud things generally. And and so sometimes, just like in real life, we might not notice them, but they're there. So now we cut from the McNeils and we have Father Dyer, friend of Father Karras, walking down a hall in what I thought was Georgetown University. But um, Keenan, you were saying this is a, this is a different place? Uh, it's a, So it's actually shot at Fordham from what I'm seeing, which is, um, you've mentioned in the book already, is that's where, um, that's where Karras stays in New York when he goes to visit his mother. Right. Yes. Um, so that's not in, in the film. But Mm. Uh, but then we have other information, as you were saying, because we have mm-hmm. Father O'Malley, who plays Father Dyer, saying that he mm-hmm. screens this film for his students, right? Yes. Or at least I, I, he talks about this film. Uh, oh, let's see. Let, just because I don't want to get anything wrong. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's jump to there and look. Okay. So this, this is what the, the, uh, the x-ray says. This is the Amazon x-ray. Um, and so folks, if, if you, if you know, uh, something different, please, please let us know. But it says, uh, the scenes showing father Karras in his room at Georgetown hmm, were filmed in Fordham university's freshman residence, Hughes hall, fourth floor. Hughes was, uh, once the site of Fordham preparatory school, since there was no elevator at the time, the windows had to be removed in order to accommodate the camera on a crane. Each year, William O'Malley, that's Father mm-hmm. Dyer's actor, uh, talks about his experience with the movie after students watch it on the same floor where it was filmed. I, I'm still confused. So is are they shooting at Fordham, but they're, they're pretending that it's Georgetown? I think so, right, because O'Malley, right, because a lot of the movie shot in New York. So when we're doing interiors, we're mostly in New York, like the McNeil House is a set. So Fordham is in the Bronx. Um, that's where O'Malley was teaching. And then, as you say, he uh, when he was still teaching there, uh, years after he made this little um, pornographic horror film, as he called The Exorcist, he would yes. show it to his students and, and talk about it there. That's really neat, though. On the same floor that they shot these scenes that he was showing us. That's scene. really cool. I would, I would love to to have that experience. Mm-hmm. That'd be really cool. Yeah, but um, so as far as we know, the the actual physical place is uh, is Fordham, and they're pretending now. It's Georgetown. That it's Georgetown. Yeah, we've seen exteriors of Georgetown that are really at Georgetown, but right, the interior right. here is in New York City. Yeah. Um, Movie magic, again, baby. Like, yeah. But then again, like, like he, because they're both, they're both teachers at Georgetown. In the, in the in movie. The, like the characters. Yes. Yeah. Right. Father, Father Karras and Father, Father Dyer are, are teachers at Georgetown. Right. Or not teachers, but like they work Father at Father Dyer is a teacher at Georgetown. Father Karras and, is and the psychiatrist for the other priest at Georgetown. Yes. <laughs> but could this, could this also be right? Because like he goes to Fordham University because it's close to his mother in the book and his, yeah, that's not and in his the mother movie, has just right. died. Okay. 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 Yeah. Oh, oh, so many, 
<laughs> in the move yeah. in the book, it says that he stays at the dorm at Fordham. That's where he he forgets to sign his name properly with his rank on it. Um, but that's where he stays when he's going to go to New York for his mother. Right. But that doesn't seem to happen in the movie. In the movie, he just stays with his mother, it seems. Right. Right. Yeah. That's like he doesn't go anywhere else in New York. Right. Right. Um, Don't got time. You just got (laughs) to see mom and, you know. Try not to see Uncle John, Uncle Tito. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Wouldn't it? You know what? You know what? You know what, Demi? Like, you know what mom would really, really like is, you know, like a trip around the the city, right? See the Statue of Liberty, (laughs) you know, see the bridge, you know, like do all these things, you know? (laughs) Like maybe that maybe that would have been a, a nice little thing. I, well, you know, it's funny. You know what we should have done? Yeah. <laughs> well, your mom died of a broken heart. Uh, we we have become Uncle Tito. Sh- <laughs> like just shit. Like I don't want I don't want to shit all, all, all on 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 Father Karras right now. For <laughs> he feels bad enough in this <laughs> in this scene. Oh my god. Um. Oh god. Uh, but yeah. Okay. So the the point uh, that I was trying to make here is that like isn't it weird? Isn't it isn't it like interesting that uh, our last scene ends with something like that is potentially scary it's like oh my god like the bed was shaking right but it ends with like one character coming to rescue another mm-hmm. character and it goes right into another character rescuing like like father dyer rescuing uh uh father Karras essentially from you know from the depths of his uh of his depression yeah, absolutely right? yeah so i really like that um so yeah so we have so we have our friend uh father dyer friend of father Karras, walking down a hall um you know he smiles as he passes by a room in which students are playing poker again another example of uh communion right of togetherness friends playing cards we see that father dyer is also carrying a uh, a valise or a small bag he passes uh what appears to be another student uh sitting alone in the hallway smiles at him um that student does not ask him if he could help an old altar boy <laughs> that, that that doesn't happen um, father dyer as he's walking down looks like he's just like cock of the walk which isn't yeah not um i just realized people might not know that just you know that's not a sexual thing <laughs> No, 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 no. But he's just like like as in the chicken. Yeah, as in, as as in, in the, the rooster, rooster, right? He yeah. just looks so happy and so at home here. Um and like he's like the cool priest. He's got his like uh his coat over his shoulder. He looks in at the kids playing poker. It's not like they'd be like, "Oh no, Father Die is here. Cheese it," right? They're like, "Oh, he's the cool priest." He's walking down. Um the script says that Father Dyer should be wearing a Snoopy t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I think the book says that too. <laughs> There's something about that. But yeah, this version of it, I mean, he's like the cool young hip Neato priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you imagine him to like just do finger guns. Yeah. Like, hey. See, I did that. We we don't see each other when we record. I was doing that while uh while I was describing. Oh. <laughs> so you can't see me, but I was. Yeah. There we go. Exactly that. We're on the same page here, folks. Um, but yeah, no. And he's he's gonna he's gonna like like elbow a jukebox and it's gonna start playing. You know. Hey, you um, catch Snoopy last night. Yeah. <laughs> Goes into goes into to Demi's room and says, "Hey, you know what's not cool? Being depressed." <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, all right, all right. It's, we get we get sillier when the movie gets sad. That's don't true. We? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're because we're trying to avoid it, folks. We're trying to get away from this. Like, Damien, I want to tell you about a character uh, who went through a lot of troubles in his own, had a lot of doubts, and had a lot of uh, adversity, but he never got down and. That character was Snoopy. <laughs> <laughs> that was some very good misdirection. I thought you were going to say Jesus. Oh, I no. thought you were going to. No, we're, we're off the clock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> takes off his red sweater and there's a, this Snoopy t-shirt underneath it. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about is Jesus. Like, like, yeah, when people want to talk to us about The Exorcist, let's watch The Exorcist. Like, 
Right, oh right, right. god, yeah, exactly. we're, we're done for the week. Yeah, let's don't, let, uh, let's not bring home. <laughs> let's not bring work home with us. Come on, they treat they treat it like a job. They clock in, mm-hmm. they clock out. Right. The, instead of a punch card, it's the little um, it's a little it's a little neck thing. <laughs> exactly. It just goes. Right. <laughs> right. Jesus. Oh, okay. we, we've Jesus gone... is everywhere, but not at six o'clock. <laughs> yeah. right. Jesus is back at the office, man. <laughs> oh my god. All right. At, at, at the risk of, of uh, going down this blasphemous path <laughs> any further. <laughs> Funny as it is. Um, okay. So, <laughs> and so, yeah, folks, that is where our minute ends. Hallways and doors, folks, hallways and doors. Uh, like I said, <laughs> this minute is a bridge, a, a hallway, perhaps, between two scenes so different and yet so similar. Uh, where is Father Dyer going and, and what's in that bag? We'll have to wait until the next minute to find out. And folks, we have a new section for you. It's called Housekeeping with Willie and Carl. This is where we talk about any corrections, any mistakes, or even just observations brought to our attention by fans and listeners, and also ones we discovered and want to correct. So uh, if you'll remember, in minute 32, uh, what an excellent day for church, we said that this priest carrying flowers, the one who sees the desecration of the Virgin Mary statue, was Father John J. Nicola. However, our friend at Exorcist Reviews pointed out that while Father John J. Nicola was hired as a technical advisor, and while at the same time Father John J. Nicola also wrote the book Diabolical Possession and Exorcism, the priest in this scene is likely an actor. And I gotta say, folks, when I tried to confirm one way or the other, I ended up confusing myself way more than necessary. Uh, no Sherlock Holmes am I. No William F. Kinderman, for that matter, either. Um... But because, folks, the Amazon X-Ray and IMDb both say that this guy in the film is John Nicola. Uh, some articles link him to the book he wrote. Some articles link him to being a technical advisor to the film. And some have him down as an actor in the film. But nowhere in any of these sources is he listed as doing all three. So, okay, any normal person can see after all this research that they simply miscredited this actor swapping his name with uh, that of one of the technical advisors. However, my dumb self thought that I had stumbled upon an amazing discovery that there was not one father, John J. Nicola, who just happened to be a priest and who just so happened to help in the making of the exorcist, but two, possibly even three, one to serve as the advisor, one to write the book, and the one credited on X-Ray and IMDb. It was an embarrassingly long time before I messaged Keenan and said, Hey, Keenan, I think this actor's name is wrong. To which he responded, Yes. Yeah, so there's not three Father John J. Nicholas. <laughs> but wouldn't that be exciting, one. folks? We were pulling up the um, the obituary for Father John uh, J. Nicola and comparing him to the picture of the actor in The Exorcist, which they look nothing alike, unfortunately. Right. I was trying very hard to be like, no, they're the same, they're the same. He just has glasses <laughs> in one and it's 30 years <laughs> apart. But no, they're not the same person, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, mm-hmm. Father Nicholas' book, right, Diabolical Possession and Exorcism, we mm-hmm. talked about that on the podcast. And yes. we had said, well, if we could afford a $150 book, we'd mm-hmm. buy it. But in that book, apparently, it says that he um, refused to be in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though he was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Keenan, he was uh, the one who had said, make sure that the demon's um, cursing and swearing and vulgar <laughs> behavior was uh, was authentic. Right. But again, it's a book that we are too poor to afford. So we did not read it ourselves. So we're doing mm-hmm. it secondhand. Uh, but yes, our friend at the Exorcist Review says that uh, Father Nicola said explicitly in his um, in his book on exorcism that he helped with the making of the movie, but did not want to be an actor. 
Yeah. So there you go, folks. Uh, mea culpa, my bad. But do go check out Exorcist Reviews on YouTube and Instagram. Uh, they've got uh, some really cool stuff. I was looking at their page the other day, and it's really good. Lots of cool facts and trivia about the book and movie as well. Uh, YouTube channel is Exorcist Reviews, and the Instagram is Exorcist underscore Reviews. So check them out. Um, and thank you, friend, for bringing this uh, to our attention. And folks, if you caught anything that we missed or got uh, or anything that we missed or anything that we got wrong, or you just want to make an observation about something in the film or the book, write us at theexorcistminute at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. And now let's uh, let's just make sure that uh, that Zedek is clean. Uh, Carl, are there are there any more rats? No rats. Okay, thanks, Carl. And Willie, do you think we got it all? Yes, I think so. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you both. Okay. I get back to work. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send you back to Geneva. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Folks, until next time, the, the power, power of Snoopy, Snoopy compels you. Compels you.